Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 18 through the uh, fourth verse of chapter 2. Um, and um, if you please could, in the honor of the reading of God's word, if you could please stand for the reading of the honor of, uh, the honor of reading of God's word. We continue Paul's journey from his testing and education in the desert by our Lord to the beginning of of his evangelism in Caesarea as he is dogged by Judaizers and those threatened by his radical teaching. Um, verse, chapter 1, verse 18. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain." But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. You may be seated. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, and this is the first one chronologically. And his first and most important letter in many ways is this. It is to establish the gospel of grace and faith. And, and that's critical. Our Lord has taught us uh, the gospel of grace, the gospel of love and his life in ministry. We've seen that. Uh, as the apostles were preaching that in Acts. The apostles preached the gospel of grace, the gospel of love and forgiveness. And as Christians, we have been taught to follow that teaching. And then along comes the apostle Paul, who writes all these letters explaining the essence of the gospel of grace. So in review, where we have been, as we have been saying over our last two trips in Galatians, uh, and as we, and we now enter the retrospective beginning of Paul's active ministry in chapter 2, his review of it, we see Paul as he begins to declare in Jerusalem and Cilicia what he has been telling us up until now in chapter 1, that God is the justifier of sinners, the goal of God and all that he does on behalf of man is that man must come into his presence as he reconciles, as God reconciles us to himself. Comes into his presence. One thing we've been studying as we walk through Hebrews in our, our, our weekly small group is the vital importance of God drawing us to himself. That Jesus is the better high priest, eternal, omnipotent, worthy uh, Lord. And, and this drawing happens, as it did to, to Abraham in Genesis, as he believed and was justified by faith. And that's the key. Over in Romans 4, chapter uh, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The law, the sacrificial system, was, had been corrupted by these Judaizers as we've been studying in Galatians. And it was the, the imperfect reminder, the sacrificial system was the imperfect reminder of God's mercy towards man. Imperfect, why? And that it had to be constantly repeated. The God-ordained ceremonies through the priests were a tutor to bring man back to the truth that man is justified by faith in the one true God, Yahweh. That's it. When Christ was crucified and resurrected, that was no longer necessary. The truth of the book of Hebrews was realized. We have direct access now to God through Jesus' work on the cross directly as our great high priest who intervenes for us. Now that was a dramatic change from what the Jews believed in the time of our Lord and the time of Paul. And essentially the Jews believed that God is gracious, God will forgive, but you must contribute. You must continue to, to participate. You need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to the Mosaic traditions. You need to be right, a righteous person. And if you qualify, God will take you the rest of the way. See the difference? Go with me, if you would, over to Luke 18.10. Luke 18.10. Our Lord tells a story about two men in the temple who were praying. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, that's our Lord saying salvation comes to the penitent as a gift of grace without merit, without works. Chapter 3 of Galatians. He says to them in verse 1, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You already have received the Spirit. You have the Spirit at work in your life. You know that. Were there any works in that? Why are you now turning to works? In chapter 4, he addresses it again in verse 9. Now what have you come to know? Now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Well, that single expression figures mightily in his fear here in Galatians 2 as well. Why is Judaic, Judaistic legalism so horrendous? 
why is legalism so unacceptable to God? First, because God is perfectly holy, and therefore what he requires is perfect righteousness. And we can't do that. And anything less than that is to fall short of his glory. First, the law is not directly the means of salvation because no one can keep it. The law shows us what wrongdoing is. It's a tutor to point out sin in your life, showing us the need for a savior. Now we, according to Paul, died to the law, meaning that its ability to identify us as sinners and demand our life in payment for our sins was fulfilled through the sacrifice of Jesus. So in Romans 7, 6, it says we have been released from the law because we have died to that in which we were held so that we might serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In this, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's Romans seven twelve. But people, there's more to it than that. Legalism is not, at its worst, a misunderstanding, a twisting of the law, though it is that. The law is not given to us to save us. It's given to us to condemn us so we run to God to be saved by grace through faith. But the worst of the legalism, it's not its misconception of the law. Please get this. This is very important. The worst aspect of human legalism is first and foremost a lie about God. It is a blasphemy of God. It is a slander against God. It is not just a wrong view of law. It is a wrong view of God. It is a lie. The devastating reality of legalism is that it strips God of his glory. It is an assault on God, and that is the worst possible thing any sinner can do. You remember last week, I read from John 18, where Pilate is cornered by Jesus and says, What is truth? Let me tell you something. The truth is always pure, and it's always revolutionary. It is the two-edged sword. There is truth, and there is corrupted personal advocacy for a cause. And the two don't meet. What passed for truth, both in Paul's time by Judaizers, and now by secular humanists, and equity grifters is not truth-telling, particularly about God. But apart from Scripture, which it is, it's an endorsement for a personal cause. If I'm at an impasse with a brother in Christ over a minor doctrinal position, and I know we have both searched the Scriptures diligently, prayed for clarity, and come to slightly different conclusions on a text, I'm okay with that because there's honesty in there, and that is a search for truth. Spirit-led truth. There is no manipulation. When the Bereans in Acts 17.11 received the scriptures with all readiness of mind, as they examined, which is antichronontes, that's the Greek word, they scrutinized, they examined, they investigated, they interrogated the received word daily, including some probable sharp discussion among themselves as they strove to come to an understanding of what Paul was saying. They were seeking truth. In the case of advocacy for a cause, I'm not telling you something because I prayed, I studied the scriptures, and have come to a settled, studied position. Content in my spirit and human pride and ignorance, I'm telling you something else told, to, told me to tell you, enticing me to, enticed me to tell you, is convenient for me to tell you, is somehow in my own selfish interest to tell you, or is a critical part of my own personal worldview. This is what the Judaizers are doing here. It's a form of selfish manipulation, and that's what's going on here in Galatians 1 and 2. Propping up the old Mosaic laws and ordinances 
in the face of Christ is nothing more than convenient manipulation of distorted truth, and Paul is having none of it. Why? When you say God gives you grace, God loves you, he'll grant you grace and mercy and forgiveness, but you must also do this or that. You have just diminished the grace of God. You've attacked his character, and in doing so, fail to acknowledge that his grace is greater than all our sins, that his love is beyond our human wretchedness, our human wretchedness and understanding. Go with me, if you would, over to uh, Luke 19, verse 21. Actually, Luke 19, verse 12, excuse me. This situation reminds me of the slave here in Luke 19, verse 12. So he said to him, so he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. And he called ten of his own slaves and gave them ten minus, minus and, gave, and, and said to them, do business with this money until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be summoned to him so that he would learn how much they had made by the business they had done. The first uh, slave appeared and saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, since you have been faithful in a little thing, you are now have authority over ten cities. The second one came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said also to him also, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have tucked away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are a demanding man, you take up what you do not lay down and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, from your own lips, I will judge you, you worthless slave. You see, when the master came back and asked what the, la the last slave, what had he done with it, he gave him, he gave him to invest. So this is, remember, these are gifts. Remember the slave's answer. I was what? I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. That's a legalist who doesn't trust or understand love, who doesn't trust mercy, who doesn't understand God's grace. You might even reap something you didn't sow. How dare you? I don't trust you. You're a hard person. And that's essentially Catholicism, the Roman Catholic definition of God. You better do some works. Don't go directly to God. He's hard. Jesus can be tough as well. Better go to Mary. Again, that's a slander against God, who you just made now not an all-loving and all-gracious and all-merciful God. See, that's why God hates man when man... Uh, when Brand endorses legalism. Because what? It fails to acknowledge the depth of his grace. Getting the gospel right is not only essential for the sake of the sinner being saved, but people, it's essential for the essence of true worship of God. Now, Roman Catholicism is an easy punching bag since very few of us here in Georgia come out of that religion. But don't worry, as we discussed last time, we're equally capable of crafting our own little world of ignorant self-righteousness through custom design, self-style deeds, works, and philosophy as we repeatedly worship the unknown God. 
And folks, let me tell you, aren't you glad our faith isn't predicated on our own works and our own wisdom, but on mercy? David shared a post. You're all familiar with Mimi's granddaughter, Samantha. Her report on her cancer back on September 23rd at this point does not look good. Four of the lymph nodes are cancerous. She is worried about what the next step should be. Mimi asked to please continue to pray for her healing. Why? Because as she said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46. That's his mercy. And isn't it a good thing that it's not the quality of our pleading or somehow how much faith we have in our own faith or our emotional hopefulness that is somehow going to make Samantha well. It's faith in the one true God. Do you think it was our emotional hopefulness that made Linda's cancer benign? No. It was calling out, pleading out to the great physician Leaning on his will, leaning on his omnipotence, leaning on his mercy. That said, I want to look at uh, scripture, uh, Galatians verse 18 and 19. Verse chapter 1. Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. And stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so we pick up the story of Paul in the desert uh, in verse 18, where we left off last time. Paul was grappling at the feet of Jesus over these very issues we have just been discussing. The Pharisee of Pharisees, but now with the scales from his eyes gone, sitting at the feet of the light of the world, and for the first time coming to grips with his Jewish heritage in the light of firsthand divine instruction of justification by faith alone. Why three years? Why was it three years? Well, the twelve had about three years with Jesus. This has been his private, personal tutorial with the Lord. And, and, and so you wonder why the richness of his theology takes 13 books in the New Testament to exhaust because he had spent so much time receiving divine truth in the desert, which was, back to, which was given back to him in the writing of these books as he walked with the Holy Spirit for the next 25 years. And by the way, we see divine revelation communicated by God in the desert to other men in Scripture, don't we? With Moses in the desert land of Midian, where God instructs him, presenting himself through a burning bush, and then later spends 40 days with a fasting Moses as he carved commandments in stone with his own finger. Elijah is sent into the desert to understand and learn what? God's supernatural provision. Over in 1 Kings 17, uh, verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be certainly be neither dew nor rain during these years except by my word. And then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook, by the brook Shareth, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you will drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide food for you there. So he went and did everything according to the word of the Lord. 
For he went and lived by the brook Shareth, which is east of Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. The Son of Man was spirit-driven into the desert wilderness after his baptism. Not because he needed instruction or tempering in the same way we do, but to submit himself to his heavenly Father, and so identifying with, with man by being tempted in every conceivable way we are tempted, yet without sin. The son of man, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham. People the Lord appropriately, creatively, and individually tempers the metal, tempers the steel of those he calls to his service through his spirit. From an Egyptian noble to a Tishbite to the Lord Jesus himself and now to Paul, a repentant Pharisee. We know the impact Paul had with those to whom he then ministered in Jerusalem, then in Syria. And it must have been astounding because of his infamous reputation. Paul at the time would be what we might call today a celebrity. He was not just the most accomplished pupil of Gamaliel, a first century Jewish rabbi and a leader in the Jewish Sanhedrin, but also a member of the Sanhedrin himself, the Supreme Court of Ancient Israel, comprised of high priestly families, scribes, and lay elders. Additionally, he was infamous for his bloody persecution of Christians. So it is natural that his coming back to Jerusalem proclaiming now a 180-degree view of Christ would have had momentous probably terrifying effects on people. And there really has been no one like him in this role since. Today we have modern Christian convert celebrities, such as C.S. Lewis, who was really already a theologian, or people like Mark Wahlberg or Tyler Perry, who make an impact in their own little world of entertainment, but there was no one, no one else like Paul. And as we see Paul coming up to Jerusalem, attacked by Judaizers here in Galatians, that's been the history of the book so far, that has been saying, okay, uh, you've brought onto this message of the apostles who are also preaching this message of grace without circumcision and law? You're getting it from them, aren't you? And Paul says, no. He reminds them, I didn't. Paul received it from the Lord himself. Three years in the wilderness. We looked at this last week. Only then did Paul go to Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, I went to meet Peter. Now, Peter was the great preacher in the early church. You see his sermons in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, 5, 8. But Paul did not go up to obtain instruction from him. Why? His instruction was divine. The Lord himself had instructed Paul. But the position of Peter as leader in the apostolic circle was known and understood by Paul. He, James, and John were called a pillar of the church. Paul understood the prominence and distinction which he knew Peter had among, in the Jerusalem church, and so he wanted to know him better. Now, the word here rendered to see or to become acquainted with, to, to know him, depending on your, on, your, on your translation, is actually the Greek word historici. It occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It means to ascertain by personal inquiry and examination, as a historian might do. The notion of personally seeing and examining as we can see, was, which was credited to the Bereans, is extremely important as, as it helped rounds out Paul's ministry. 
Now, it's, it's understandable in verse 19 where he says, I didn't see any of the other apostles. Most likely, they were scattered preaching. But he did see James, the Lord's brother, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And it said, it, we see here this interaction is mentioned by Paul as lasting 15 days. Now, there's a, probably a mix of time with Peter, as well as public disputes with Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. See this in Acts 9. But the emphasis is on the short time. Again, he was not there to be tutored by Peter or James. He was already, that already happened in the desert. He's there to greet these men, but his, his instruction, his apostolic credentials had come from the Lord himself in the desert. Verse 20, he gives a little sort of common Jewish vow in a parenthetical sort of way. He says, now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God, I am not lying. It's always hard when you have to say that, isn't it? Because it means someone is accusing you of lying. We just discussed the importance, the weightiness of truth-telling. So after leaving Jerusalem, we see in verse 21 to 23, Paul goes into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is his home, to preach the gospel mightily there. And it's at Tarsus that Barnabas sought him out. You see this in Acts 11. So verse 22 and 23, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And, and by the way, isn't that the biography of all of us here as sinners? In our pre-Christian existence, we either ignored the Lord, taunted him, or in some other way, misabused uh, him in our, own, in our own individualized way. And it's important, as we see this, um, that Paul is shown here to have an independent ministry at a distance from Jerusalem. Now, he did go back once with Barnabas to carry alms from Antioch to the elders, but circumstances really prevented any meeting with the twelve at that time, for, they reached the, for as they, before they reached the city, the Herodian persecution had begun. And leading Christians were threatened by death at the hands of Herod. So Paul himself was likely to have only been able to pay a secret and hurried visit to the city. Um, I do want to touch here on a little bit of background of this, of this Herod's persecution, just to give you a little bit of context as we come to terms with the constant physical trials of Paul, which he graphically describes here in Galatians as well as 2 Corinthians 11. During the early church, um, the Roman Empire had entered a time of change. Emperor Tiberius had just handed over control to a Roman bureaucracy that ruled the empire. Tiberius dies in 37 AD. He is succeeded by his great nephew, Caligula, or Gaius. Now, Caligula quickly became obsessed with a vision of himself as a living God, the heir of Julius Caesar and Augustus both of whom were deified in death and demanded that he be worshipped alongside all the other gods in the empire. His reign was short, but his demands had long-term fallout. As you have probably been taught in Sunday school over many years, prior to Caligula, Rome had a fairly tolerant view of other religions. One could worship whoever and however they wanted, as long as they paid homage to the Roman emperor and the imperial regime. This peace was now broken, which inflamed resentments, especially in places like Judea. In AD 37, Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great, came on as king over the lands Herod Philip had ruled as tetrarch. 
Herod Agrippa was visiting Rome when Caligula was assassinated in AD 41. He aided Claudius in solidifying his successor role as emperor. So Claudius was loyal to Herod Agrippa for this act and later appointed him king over Judea and Samaria. Herod Agrippa was raised in Rome, but he was conscious of the role of Judaism in his own country. As a politician, he publicly supported the religious leaders around Jerusalem in order to gain favor with them. Herod Agrippa and his allies started a major attack against the newly born Christian movement, which leads us to his first high-profile victim, James the Great, the son of Zebedee, apostle and brother of John. And so we see now the, the environment in Judea, the very anti-Christian environment that's beginning to bubble up. And as we see this, it reminds us, as we see from Rome to today, the constant wars over truth. We've, just been, we've been talking about truth this morning. And we're probably more aware of them today than any civilization has ever been because of, of, of social media and other means. But we, we see and we have really always seen that the world is an endless conflict. And uh, the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, says it well. Long lay the world in sin and air pining, till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Judea, Syria, Cilicia, was then at now a weary world that received Paul's herald of justification by faith with one hand, as it at other times with the other hand chases him savagely out of town. Acts 12, 1-3. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Then he saw this met with approval among the Jews. He proceeded to seize Peter also. We go to verse 24. Paul continues his praise. They were glorifying God because of me. In spite of all this that's happening... The message, the gospel of grace, the gospel of justification by faith alone is penetrating into the community. They praised God on my account. They regarded me as a true convert and sincere Christian, and they praised God that he had converted such a persecutor and had made him a preacher of the gospel. So those that had received Paul did regard him accurately as a convert and a true apostle, and they praised God for his conversion. So looking back, making a big circle, why is this biography necessary in Galatians? Why this little history? It demonstrates by showing the Galatians, the recipients of this letter, they had the confidence of the churches in the very land where the gospel was first planted, which was regarded as a source of church authority. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 1. After an interval of 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Here's where their confidence in him comes to the fore. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those of reputation for fear I might be running or had run in vain. Again, 14 years. So nothing in Paul's biography for 14 years has room for him to have been taught by men. He was in Syria and Cilicia, the church in Judea, in Judea really didn't know him well. We see he's still getting direct revelation. 
He got direct revelation on the road to Damascus. He got direct revelation in the house of Ananias. He got direct revelation three years in the desert. He's been getting direct revelation from the Lord for 14 years of his ministry. And now another of those rather common revelations from heaven comes, and the, which is the reason he goes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem really needs to hear from you. And this is very important to talk about again. Paul is not questioning Peter or James' gospel. He is being sent here by God. The revelation may have come to Paul first. It may have come to the church leaders with Paul collectively, but they all agree he needed to be sent to Jerusalem. And people, this is how the Holy Spirit operates. What brings him back, almost assuredly, is the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. The confronting of sin. When he comes back, he brings Barnabas with him. Paul had been alone in the Lord in his ministry and now returns with Barnabas as his companion. Barnabas, remember, had met Paul on a very first visit after his salvation. Paul gave him access. Barnabas became his friend. Barnabas came to minister alongside him. Paul founded churches in Syria and Cilicia. He worked with Barnabas. A church was founded in Antioch in Syria, the second church. It was about the time of the death of Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44 that he accompanied Barnabas on that relief mission. They brought relief to famine-struck believers in Jerusalem and Judea. So he goes right back to Antioch. Upon his return, he goes on his first missionary journey. Coming back, he remains in Antioch and finally makes this trip to Jerusalem 14 years afterward. Now, Paul was not one that would crave outside confidence in his own teaching. He didn't need necessarily the approval of others on the surface. And yet he was aware it rested jointly, his ministry rested jointly upon his own conviction as well as God's divine will. Yet there was still an element of uncertainty and room for confirmation. Paul was self-confident, even obstinate. But he wanted to make absolutely doubly sure, and this is confirmed and ratified certainty, and, and, and this is a confirmed and ratified certainty, which always animates his use of language in writing to the Galatians. Paul writes in a very animated way at times. Now, the reason for the visit, of course, as we've mentioned, is sin. Recalling the Judaizers, though they believe in Christ, cling to their Judaism, and therefore hold on to their spiritual pride, and so look down on the apostles and speak of them sarcastically, ridiculing them. But Paul said, I want to go, and Paul went, went, went to those who have reputation, James, Peter, and John, and other apostles who might have been there. And he went there because I feared I might be running or had run in vain. Again, he wanted the confirmation of the church. They understood fully what he has been doing, that there was unity between the gospel he's proclaiming, the gospel they're proclaiming, so he's showing here genuine honesty. Paul wanted their affirmation of the church. Paul never doubted the truth that the Lord gave him. Paul heard it from his lips. Paul never doubted its power, and now for almost 17 years... He would say, how can you explain me? That's his whole case in chapter 1. How can you explain a persecutor of Christianity now preaching it? I know the power of the gospel. I know the truth of it. But I want apostolic affirmation. I want you to know that it isn't just that I received it from the Lord, but that the apostles also confirmed it. As though Paul needed further affirmation, Peter writes years later what he saw, what he sees in Paul, and this is in 2 Peter 
3, verses 14 through 16. This is in speaking in the context of the coming judgment of the world. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him at peace, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you. In 16, as in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which there are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. People, that's the, that's the Judaizers and the unbelieving Gentiles. The people Paul was ministering to at this point in Galatians. So go, go with me over, if you would, to Acts chapter, chapter 15. And we'll continue to pick up this um, return, as it were, to Jerusalem. Acts 15, verse 1. Um, and we see here, some men came down from Judea began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here we find Jews coming to Antioch and demanding that these Gentiles be circumcised or they can't be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas are debating them. The brethren determine that Paul and Barnabas and others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. On their way, they're passing through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and we're bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrive at Jerusalem, they're received by the church and the apostles and report all that God had done through them. Again, confirmation of Paul's message, confirmation of Paul's legitimate apostleship, confirmation that when Paul preaches justification by faith alone, it's true. You can bank on it. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise, circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And this set up the debate. The debate rages. And in Acts 15, 6, we see that the elders and the apostles came together to look into this matter. So we have... Judaizers are coming, they're preaching a false gospel, they're making every attempt to infect the, 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 the newly born church, they're satanic emissaries, Paul and Barnabas take them on with impact and power such that Paul and Barnabas are sent down to Jerusalem to help the elders with this issue as well. And so Paul comes, Paul's preaching freedom in Christ, justification by faith to the whole church and the Jews who would listen to him, all the while being hounded by Herod and these Judaizers. So the biographical history of Paul that led off in 118 arrives at the present day purpose for him writing the book of Galatians. He has a historical biography that morphs into reality in the present day for him. What I'm dealing with right now with you folks. Go with me if you would over to um, Matthew 13, verse 24. <clears throat> Matthew 13, 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat 
and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore, and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go up and gather them? He said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow first, allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, now the believers who Paul is ministering to would have understood this. Because this is what happens in the ancient world when an enemy wants to damage you. You sow noxious tares in their wheat field, corrupting the grain. The tares and the weeds would choke out much of the good crop. When Paul was in Ephesus in his third missionary journey in Acts 20, he says this, um, verse 27, For I do not shrink from you declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to what? To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. False teachers are everywhere. When Paul writes to Timothy... He warns him about false teachers as a young pastor. When he writes to Titus, he warns him about false teachers. All pastors and all leaders are to be able to refute false doctrine. That's a very, very important qualification for pastoring a church that has never changed. Now we see in verse 3 of Galatians 2... The application of circumcision comes into play. Because, it's, because now what is now theological becomes incredibly practical. It becomes more than an academic discussion over legalism. It's very, very personal. If Paul earlier had wanted confirmation about his uh, veracity... In preaching justification by faith alone, apart from works, the confirmation is going to come quickly. In fact, it's going to come almost instantaneously here. Verse 3. Not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek or a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. That's the answer. Let's stop talking about theoretical things. Let's talk about practicality. He brings Titus with him. Titus is a Gentile, a living illustration. Paul calls him my true child in a common faith. Titus is a believer transformed, possessor of the Holy Spirit, companion of Paul and Barnabas. I brought Titus. Not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So here is a living, redeemed, spirit-indwelt Gentile who has not been circumcised and has not been made to conform to ancestral traditions or Mosaic ceremonies. This is important. What would the apostles do with him? Because whatever they would do with him would be their response to this overall issue of works, of whether you have to be circumcised or, or observe the Mosaic laws in order to believe. 
If, if, they, if they said Titus must be circumcised, then the, Judea, then the Judaizers win. Judaizers won, Paul zero. But no. Paul says to the Galatians, though he was a Greek, he was not compelled to be circumcised while at Jerusalem in the presence of the apostles. This is a devastating blow to the Judaizers. The Judaizers are looking for corroboration of their view. They fail to get it. If the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem don't require this Gentile to be circumcised, how could the Judaizers require it of the, of the rest of the Gentile world? You might say, wait a minute. Wasn't Timothy circumcised after his conversion? Yes. The story is in Acts 16. But remember, Timothy's mother was Jewish. His father was a Gentile. By all accounts, then, considered to be of Jewish blood through his mother. But Timothy was not going to be his only companion, but carries the baton when Paul's ministry is over, and as he carries it forward, acceptance is vital. Timothy needed to be welcomed into the places Paul would go. Therefore, circumcision. And where did Paul go when he ministered? He went to the town, and then where? To the synagogue. No Gentile could come to a synagogue or any place reserved for Jews. It was important for Timothy to be circumcised because he's considered a Jew. It added nothing to his life spiritually or in, a, in, in any saving sense, but it gave him access to the Jews along with Paul. So again, we will turn back to Acts uh, 15. The leaders, James, Peter, John, agree with the position of Paul and Barnabas. No circumcision was, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. No ritual, no rite, no external ceremony, no sacrament. If the apostles had Titus circumcised, it undermines the gospel of grace. And we see this in Acts 15 in verse 6. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. That's where we ended just a minute ago. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, the early days meaning going all the way back to the 10th chapter of Acts, and how he evangelized Cornelius the centurion and all the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, verse 7, after there had been much debate. This was not an easy answer. This had to be chewed over. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Since this is the case, why are you putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they also are. All the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. See, the Judaizers had voiced their opinions. They had denounced the apostles. All of this. And then we come to verse 4, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty that we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Well, who sows the tares? We just looked at this. It's Satan that sows the tares. Who had sneaked in? They were both brought in and snuck in, brought in by Satan. They sneaked in themselves under the guise of being believers in Christ Jesus. But they come to spy out our liberty, our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. They came into the church. They come into the church. 
today. They came to corrupt the truth. They come to corrupt the truth. They came to sow tares. They come to sow tares. They came in secretly. They come in secretly. They came in to attack freedom from the law. Remember, freedom from the law was a key to salvation and a key theme in this book of Galatians. It means freedom from ex any external ceremonies which the Old Testament law required, freedom from Jewish traditions, freedom from the works as a means of salvation, rather than love, mercy, and grace. Believers, the Christian is free in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is true freedom. Amen. There is true liberty. Close in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful just for your mercy and your gift. Your gift to the, to the stewards of, of the money. Your gift to us with life. The gift to us with believing children. The gift to us with uh, healing that is going on. And at the same time, we're reminded of those that are still suffering, uh, that need your mercy and grace for those that didn't survive cancer, for those that did lose uh, loved ones in an untimely way. Lord, we are just so constantly reminded of your majesty, your omnipotence, that is so far above our ability to think or imagine. And Lord, whatever happens in, in, uh, as we travel this road with you as a church, as believers, uh, Lord, we, we know that you are truthful and just and mighty in every respect. And Lord, we, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are an all-powerful God. And Lord, we just thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.